It is really good to be with you. Uh, we have prayed for you often as we have gathered together on Sunday mornings to worship the Lord Jesus, as we have gathered as elders. Uh, we have often prayed for this church. So to be here and to see you face to face is a wonderful blessing. Uh, I have so enjoyed getting to know uh, Jacob over the last several years. I've been at Redeemer about five and a half years, and I think I met Jacob pretty quickly after I moved here and have always enjoyed getting together with him. Uh, talking about pastoral ministry, uh, I think Jacob is an unusually wise pastor. So as I face different challenges in ministry, I always enjoy getting together uh, with Jacob and kind of hearing his straightforward, no-nonsense, very biblical outlook on life and ministry. And then the other thing I appreciate about him is that he has known Aaron White longer than I have. And so one of my favorite activities is to make fun of Aaron. And uh, Jacob offers me lots of material that I wouldn't otherwise have. And so I, I have grown to appreciate and to love Jacob very much. Uh, and I'm, I'm honored to be here speaking to you this morning. If you'll take your copy of the scriptures, and if you haven't already, turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And let me read this for us before I pray. So the psalmist writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in humility knowing that we need to hear from you this morning. Now, we do not gather together to hear the life experience or supposed wisdom of any man, but we gather together to hear from you, God. So would you speak to us through your word and would the Holy Spirit then apply the truth of your perfect word to our lives. <clears throat> Everything we desire to happen this morning 
requires divine power and cannot be accomplished in human strength. And so we ask, Lord, would you work? Would you work in our midst and would you work through us for the glory of Jesus Christ? In his name we pray, amen. I realized this morning as I was working through uh, my notes that last time I worked through this psalm, I did it in the CSB, or the Christian Standard Bible. So as I work through this, I read it out of the ESV, but as I work through this this morning, I don't want you to be thrown off or distracted. If you look at your ESV and it doesn't match up uh, perfectly, it will be very close. As we launch into this short study of Psalm 32, I want to ask you a question. Uh, What is the good life? What is the good life? Ask a hundred different people that question and you will likely get a hundred different answers. For some, you might hear a lot about financial wealth and all the things you could buy with loads of money, like a, a full tank of gas. From others, you, you might hear something about the satisfaction of relationships, perhaps the joy of a healthy, Christ-honoring relationship, or the desire for something more Christless and hedonistic. Undoubtedly, some would mention job advancement, the enjoyment of travel, the closeness of family, the achievement of educational goals. There are so many possible ways one could define and describe the good life. But friends, here's something you probably won't hear. But it is the answer we find in Psalm 32. The good life, the good life is knowing that your sin is forgiven. The good life is freedom from the crushing guilt and shame of unconfessed sin. The good life is marked by profound joy in the kindness and grace of God. In fact, this is precisely how our psalm for this morning begins. Again, verse 1. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Notice this psalm does not primarily present us with the way to forgiveness as, as if it's something you and I can earn or secure by following some special plan. No, friends, this is an invitation to those already forgiven. It's an invitation to live in the fullness of what you have already received by grace. Interestingly, a number of Old Testament scholars think this psalm was written by David sometime after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. In fact, they speculate that this was written even after David wrote Psalm 51. 
In this way, the two psalms are tied together. Perhaps Psalm 51 is the more raw and immediate outpouring of regret and remorse. Well, Psalm 32 is sort of like David stepping back and evaluating his experience in a way that will benefit others. In other words, Psalm 51 is David modeling profound brokenness over sin. Once he has been confronted, he comes clean. Psalm 32 is David sitting down and warning fellow believers. It's as if he's saying to us, let me walk you through my experience and encourage you to avoid my stiff-necked mistakes. So then, friends, how does the psalmist counsel those already forgiven to live in the fullness of what they have received? Well, he does this by means of an encouragement and several warnings. The encouragement is simple and straightforward, and the warnings are serious. So first, let me give you a basic definition of confession. Before we see it explained within this text, I want you to have some framework for understanding it. Confession of sin, as we'll talk about it this morning, is this. The open acknowledgement... The open acknowledgement that I have failed to glorify God and I have grieved his heart by disobeying his law. The open acknowledgement that I have failed to glorify God and I have grieved his heart by disobeying his law. Or you could say more generally disobeying his word. Again, we see this explicitly in the text, but... But I want you to know the aim of this psalm before we dive in. And so here's the aim of the whole psalm. Knowing you're forgiven, knowing you're forgiven is altogether different than actually experiencing the tangible joy of being forgiven. And the pathway to this very real experience of joy is to be quick to confess your sin. Now remember what I said just a few moments ago. Psalm 32 is David sitting down and warning fellow believers. Let me walk you through my experience and encourage you to avoid my stiff-necked mistakes. In other words, David is saying to you and me, listen, I know you're going to be tempted to do what I did. To foolishly try to cover and hide your sin rather than confess it please friend don't do what I did And you may say why well here's warning number one warning number one failing to confess your sin will make you miserable failing to confess your sin will make you miserable Look at verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. 
Notice the first phrase of verse 3 as I've read it for you. When I kept silent. David has sinned. He knows that he has done wrong. He knows his actions have been wicked. He knows the spiritual significance of his sin. In fact, he describes it well in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight, as he cries out to God. The problem is not that David is ignorant of his sin. It's that he is unwilling to confess it. He's unwilling to come clean before a God who knows the exact number of hairs on his head and grants him every breath he breathes. Even so, David remains silent. And notice what his unwillingness to confess produces again in verse 3 my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long David's unwillingness to confess his sin is affecting him physically the anguish of the guilty sinner is not simply spiritual but it's often physical as well You see, we are all spiritual, emotional, physical beings. We are complex creatures. And we don't live out our days in these neat and tidy compartmentalized boxes. Unrest in the heart and mind can produce an actual lack of physical rest. The guilt and shame that comes from foolish decisions and sinful actions can make someone physically sick. Notice in the beginning of verse 4, there is no break for the unrepentant one. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat now i want to make i want to make sure something is crystal clear while the immediate cause of david's misery is a heart unwilling to confess sin the ultimate source of david's misery is the hand of god The immediate source is is his unconfessed sin. The ultimate source is the hand of God. Jim Hamilton explains when he describes the Lord's hand being heavy upon him, sapping his strength as with summer heat, it becomes clear that David refers to God convicting, afflicting, and opposing unrepentant sinners. So I want to say something to the one here today who's in the midst of this experience that I've described right now. You've made some foolish decisions. You've ignored and rejected God's word. And this has led you into sin. 
here you are this morning hearing me describe your life. You know what you've done is wrong, but you're unwilling to come clean. You're unwilling to confess your sin. And though you may be fooling people on the outside, on the inside, you are absolutely miserable. Friend, if this is you, please know that God's hand of loving discipline is upon you. And the feelings of deep anguish and even physical pain that you're now enduring, these are reminders of God's love for you. You see, he loves you too much to leave you alone as you wallow in the mire of your unconfessed sin. He is willing for you to suffer for a time under his heavy hand if this is what brings you to a place of repentance and restoration. If it brings you to make the actions of verse 5 your own. Verse 5, then I acknowledge my sin to you And I did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. The acknowledgement of sin. The uncovering of iniquity. The confession of transgressions. All of this is met according to the text with immediate forgiveness and relief. Brothers and sisters, your elders here have undoubtedly seen this exact scenario play out before their eyes. I can think of specific people I've counseled who've been hiding sin, refusing to confess. And when I begin meeting with them, I can actually see the weight of Guilt and shame in their eyes. I I notice how jumpy and frightened they seem to be. Always looking over their shoulder. I then watch as the Holy Spirit begins to work. And they finally confess their sin. And I can actually see physical changes. Their shoulders loosen And their eyes look different and their smile comes back. You can see the transformation as the person moves from verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. And by God's unfailing kindness, verse 4 gives way to verse 1. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven... Whose sin is covered. So if I have described you over the last several minutes, friend. I want to plead with you to confess your sin. Confess your sin. And trade the misery of hidden sin for the joy of forgiven sin.
So warning number one, failing to confess your sin will make you miserable. Warning number two, failing to confess your sin reveals your foolishness. Failing to confess your sin reveals your foolishness. Look at verse six. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit or bridle, or else it will not come near you. So here, David essentially tells us, refusing to confess your sin is stupid. Refusing to confess your sin is stupid. So so don't be stiff-necked and stupid, David said, like I was. He begins his second warning by connecting it to what he said right before. If, If trying to hide and cover your sin makes you miserable... And confession will be met with immediate grace and restored joy, knowing that you've been fully forgiven, then why would you delay? Why would you delay? Verse 6, therefore, in light of what I've already explained, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. David moves from personal example to a corporate appeal. And again, his appeal to the people of God is this. Don't do what I did. Don't try to hide your sin. Don't be stupid. Come into the light and call out in confession right now. Why? Well, instead of experiencing God's judgment against your sin, that's the reference to floodwaters in the second part of verse 6. Instead of this, you will only know his protection and deliverance. That's verse 7. In other words, the humble and contrite, the humble and contrite will never receive a stiff arm from God. When you come to God in brokenness, you will not be pushed away, but you will be pulled in close. In fact, what's the language of the text? You will be hidden. You will be protected. Primarily, you will be hidden and protected by God from God. Here I picture the prodigal son of Luke chapter 15. Do you ever think that after this son had squandered his inheritance and found himself on all fours fighting with pigs for something to eat, Do you think as he came to his senses and and desired to go home, knowing the reality of his sin and ready to confess it openly, do you think, friends, that 
he may have struggled with how his father might react. I imagine he would have. Maybe he wondered if this is what his father would say. I'm sorry, son. You made your decision. You've ruined your life. You're no longer welcome here. Do you think the evil one whispered in the son's ear, you're such a screw up. Look what you've done. Your father will be embarrassed to ever associate with you again. I think it's reasonable to assume something like this happened. And yet, how does the text describe the son's return home? This is what it says in Luke 15. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Friends, this is the heart of the Father for unfaithful sons and daughters who respond in brokenness to loving discipline and come back home in humble repentance. doesn't turn a cold shoulder, but he runs to greet you. While you are still far off, he will run to meet you. And you will know only this. Verse 7. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Now, if this is all true, and it is, then David's plea to you, unrepentant brother or sister, is found in verse 9. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near to you. Of course, there is a more direct and provocative way to say don't be a mule, but I'll stick with this. Brother or sister, if you know you're in sin and you're foolishly refusing to confess that sin... Don't be stubborn and don't be stupid. Repent right now. Be reconciled to God 
and have the joy of full forgiveness restored. So warning number one, failing to confess your sin will make you miserable. Warning number two, failing to confess your sin reveals your foolishness. And finally, warning number three, failing to confess your sin is a willful rejection of true happiness. Failing to confess your sin is a willful rejection of true happiness. Look at verse 10. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This psalm concludes where it began. With an announcement of the good life. But this time it's presented in the context of a contrast. For the one who might hear the teaching of this psalm and question its truth. Wondering, is the good life really a life of both being forgiven by God and then regularly confessing my sin so that I might enjoy ongoing fellowship with God? Maybe that all sounds complicated. So you wonder, maybe, maybe the good life is a life where I don't even think about sin. Where I don't even think about confession. Where I don't even have to wonder about restored fellowship with God. How about this? I'll just do my own thing. And whatever happens, happens. That's the life I'll pursue. That sounds better. Well friends, hear the warning of the psalmist again. Many pains come to the wicked but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him be glad in the Lord and rejoice you righteous ones shout for joy all you upright in heart both the wicked and the righteous face difficulty and trouble and suffering and temptation But there is a profound difference between the experience of the two. For the wicked, their life is marked by a deep and unavoidable pain. For the wicked, their life is marked by a deep and unavoidable pain, no matter how hard they might try to mask it. In fact, the prophet Isaiah describes it this way in Isaiah 57. But the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still. And its water churns up mire and muck. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. Back in verse 10, notice the contrast, brothers and sisters. Even in the most difficult seasons of your life, including your most profound battles with sin, 
what remains absolutely true? The faithful love of the Lord surrounds you. You're never left alone. Even when you try to hide your sin, Christian friend, you can't hide from God's love. It surrounds you. And it calls you to confess. Stop trying to cover your sin because it's already been covered by the overwhelming grace of God. How foolish this is. You've already been forgiven. So be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Shout for joy. In closing, I want to make two pleas. First, if you're a Christian and you've been battling sin, failing over and over again, but the shame and and guilt has pushed you into a dangerous place of secrecy, you've been trying to hide your sin and cover it up and it's quite literally killing you. If that's you, friend, look back at verse 5 and do what you find in the text. Acknowledge your sin. Don't try to conceal it any longer. Confess it and know the staggering joy of those final seven words, you forgave the guilt of my sin. Find out what it's like to live in freedom again. The freedom of knowing that you've been forgiven. Now for the Christian and non-Christian, openly confessing your sin can be a a scary prospect. That's why I have an appeal both to the Christian and the unchristian, but non-Christian, but then I want to offer some encouragement. So the second plea, if you've joined us this morning and you're not a Christian, which means that you've never turned to Christ in faith, repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus, my desire for you, and I know the leaders of this church, the members of this church, their desire for you is to taste true forgiveness for the first time in your life. And again, You can look at verse 5, and you can do what you find there as well. Confess your sin and know true forgiveness. So Christian, stop trying to hide your sin. Non-Christian, come out into the open And find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. But to both of you, you might be thinking that that sounds a little bit scary. So let me give an encouragement to the whole church family here. Grace Church, I I want you to be a church that invites 
honest confession and encourages joyful restoration. And if this is going to be the case, then you need to embrace a simple equation. And I think this is expressed wonderfully by Ray Ortland in a little green book he wrote called Gospel. And this is what Ray Ortland encourages in this book and with this I'll close. He gives us a a little equation and here's the equation. Gospel plus safety plus time. Ortland writes, it's what everyone needs. A lot of gospel, a lot of safety, and a lot of time. Gospel, good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit. Multiple exposures, constant immersion, wave upon wave of grace and truth according to the Bible. And I know you get that. A lot of gospel. A lot of safety. A non-accusing environment. No finger pointing. No embarrassing anyone. No manipulation. No oppression. No condescension. But respect and sympathy and understanding where sinners can confess and unburden their souls. That doesn't mean that we're soft on sin or that we overlook the seriousness of God's word. But in the context of a, a gospel culture, we provide a safe place for those, like the psalmist talks about here, who are hiding To say, no, 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 come out into the light. We won't crush you, but we'll love you. A lot of gospel, a lot of safety, and a lot of time. Time, no pressure. Not even self-imposed pressure. No deadlines on growth. Urgency, but not hurry, because no one changes quickly. A lot of space for complicated people to rethink their lives at a deep level. God is patient. And so our churches ought to be marked by patience as well. Orland concludes, this is what our churches must be. Gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. It's where we're finally free to grow. And that's what we want. We want real and authentic spiritual growth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your sufficient and perfect word. I'm amazed so often when I come to different texts within the Holy Scriptures and 
these texts breathed out by you, God, are so applicable. They can describe our own experience to a T. And yet, like we have experienced this morning, even when the experience that is described is the experience of pain and difficulty and rebellion and obstinance, even in these situations, we are given an answer. We are given perfect, perfect heavenly counsel. So I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never turned in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, that even in this moment, Holy Spirit, would you give them eyes to see what they have never seen before? Would you give them a heart to receive the gift that is being offered through the finished work of the Lord Jesus. I pray as well for the brother or sister who is here. Who has engaged in sin and has given into the temptation to try to hide. They have failed to confess their sin. Holy Spirit, even in this moment, would you move that brother or sister out into the light? So that they might receive grace and forgiveness and restored joy. We pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.